on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. And today we're thinking about all of those kids at the moment who are doing their exams, whether they're year 12, VCE, HSE, whatever that finishing exam is for high school kids. And right throughout uh, the school year, it's been a really difficult couple of years for students and parents as well and for teachers, no doubt about that. Hopefully, though, better days are ahead for all. But for those students who are coming through their year 12, it uh, is a transition into another phase of their life. And it is a time of intense concentration and hopes and anxiety and everything else that goes with it for them, their parents, their loved ones and everyone they know. What it takes to get through a year like that often is the guidance, the compassion and the wisdom of a great teacher. And our next guest is definitely one of those. His name is Brendan James Murray and he is a published author and an award-winning author in his own right. And he has just written another magnificent book called The School. Now, Brendan's story is one that's very personal to him because he's a teacher, despite the fact that he's also a very successful author, because he has a passion for teaching and the craft of teaching and the value of teaching in transforming lives. He's very, very good at it too. And he's written a book called The School, which is a memoir of one year at the school in which he teaches, where he takes us inside the lives of the teachers, the school itself, the students uh, across different levels with their challenges, their uh, their excitement, their aspirations, their fears and anxieties, their love and, and support for one another, their humour, and also the journey from being a school student to life beyond it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And what it does also talk about is the value of teaching, something that for many, many people, it's a lifelong vocation. And for the wider community, sometimes undervalued in the way that we treat teachers, the way that they're paid, the way that they're looked after, because sometimes I think we forget to recognise what it is that they do that is so, so important for our kids. It's a great conversation. It's one of my favourite books I've written in a while. Let's meet Brendan James Murray and talk about the school. So I've been looking forward to this interview for a while now because Brendan James Murray's book, The School, has just uh, swept me away. I've been totally engrossed in it in the last week or two reading this memoir of one year in a school in the outer suburbs of Melbourne on the Mornington Peninsula, which takes you right into the heart of the experience of a teacher and his or her students and the wider school community at the same time diving deep into the issues around education, what's working, what's not, and just trying to get to a place where we can help young people reach their full potential. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, everything I've heard about it echoes the same thing. And we're so lucky today to have Brendan James Murray joining us on the job. Brendan, thank you so much for being here with us all. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's such a beautiful Um, book, Brendan. Uh, Can I just ask about how you got to a place where you felt comfortable writing about your work, given that it's so intimate and there are so many elements that incorporate real people into this particular story in this book? Yeah, well, I think initially I didn't really think it would be possible to write about teaching and about schools while you're a current teacher. I mean, we've had lots of great books written about schools. For instance, um, Gabby Stroud wrote a great book, but she's not in the classroom anymore. So that that thought had sort of put me off for a while, but 
I gradually came to realise that if it was done in, in the right way with the cooperation of the participants and we've changed names and changed details and so forth and the support of my school, because I have to say that, that I've got a fantastic principal and, and she supported me from the very beginning when, when I said that I wanted to do this, I realised that it was possible and I think it's, it's important that as many people who are teachers currently are getting their voices out there because we're the ones, of course, who um, know what it's like day to day in the classroom. Mm. I think this year, well, this these past two years for so many parents around the continent has given us an opportunity to be more involved in our kids' schooling both by running or supporting remote learning programs from home, but also, you know, my six-year-old, she needs like a lot of supervision to do her prep. And so that means that I I feel like I've had all this time with her prep teacher, seeing her not only implement teaching strategies that I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like, but also just sort of see the way she, she lifts every student up, you know, like it's funny Zoom connections with five and six-year-olds and she's just able to brighten these kids' days and make them feel safe and engaged. Like I just, I didn't think I could love teachers more and then <laughs> remote learning happened and I am just so blown away. And I think what's really special about your book is it, it also gives that insight. Something that I think really comes through beautifully in your book is the role of a teacher in kids' life beyond being an educator. You're so much more to these kids. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, I think one of the great joys of this job, and, and I try try as much as I can to to celebrate how fantastic this job is, because although I raise frustrations in the book, of course, the last thing I'd ever want to do is um, put people off, for example, starting a career in teaching. So it is a wonderful job. And, and for me, the most rewarding part of it and the most enjoyable part of it is that opportunity that you have to be more than just somebody who's teaching the three R's, you know, the old reading, writing and arithmetic, as we used to say. It's a cliche, but it, it does. It takes a village to, to raise a child. And as a teacher, you become part of that bigger picture, part of that village that is guiding them towards adulthood and, and showing them the hopefully the right ways to be because, of course, we're in that role modelling position. And we say the best way to put it, I suppose, when we talk about this in teacher education is friendly but not a friend. You're not the student's friend because if you cross that boundary, it becomes problematic. But you have this great opportunity to be a warm and caring and welcoming and approachable role model in a young person's life. And, and what, what an amazing privilege that is that we have. How hard has it been to do that and to be that presence in a student's life remotely via Zoom? All of those elements that you write about in the book about those personal connections, which is so important, which build that trust, your own empathy towards the students and their needs – has been made so much harder. Have you found that? And what has that demanded of you? And what has that done to the students? Yeah, it's way, way, way harder. We know it even even sitting here, the three of us having a conversation now, it's not the same as if we were together. You know, humans are, are supposed to be together with one another. But of course, the situation is what it is. So I'm not, I'm not sort of suggesting anything political there. I'm just saying it, it poses all these challenges. I suppose there's still been opportunities to do that. So 
we use Google Meet at my school and you can have little breakout rooms. And if you're worried about a kid, you can say, oh, why don't you come over into the breakout room and we'll have a chat? Or there's one student in particular in my year eight class at the moment who very frequently will say to me, oh, Mr. Murray, can we have a bit of a chat? And, and we'll just have a, a chat about her day. Opportunities are there, but it's not quite the same. And and I, the way I sort of put it from a teaching perspective is there's a kind of energy I think you can generate in a room that you can never generate when you're talking to a person through a screen. That said, there's the flip side to that coin as well because I've also seen from a learning perspective some kids absolutely thrive in the remote learning space, which is um, something that I don't think we talk about enough. There are some kids who love to be by themselves and sitting down and, and just focused in a quiet room and, and, and you really see them learn so much in that space. Mm, so true. You mentioned just then, Brendan, how you said something to the effect of like, oh, I want to be careful how I put this because I don't want to discourage people from becoming teachers, right? But there is that statistic, right? Is it 40% of teachers change careers within their first five years? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there's two main reasons in my opinion. The first is that we as teachers and particularly new teachers have a tendency to work ourselves into the ground. So the graduate teacher, you always see it, theirs is the last car in the car park. They're the one who's doing correction, unit planning, all the rest of it until until midnight or, or whatever it might be. Because that they are so passionate about what they're doing and they want to be the best teacher that they can be and, and they're, they're very, very selfless. So there's that aspect to it. Like a burnout. Yeah. Absolutely. I think so. a burnout through overwork would be the way that I would put it. And I think there's a lot more that schools and the system broadly can be doing to prevent that from happening. I write in the school about this, how we actually contribute to that, I think, as a profession and, and more broadly. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. So, for example, uh, and it's I should say it's not every school, but there, there's a tendency in many schools in teaching, particularly high school teaching, we talk about allotments. So the classes that you have, you know, you might have two year sevens, two year eights and a year 12 or something like that. There's often a tendency to give graduates very challenging allotments. We see that in a number of schools. That can be because the more experienced teachers, you know, it's sort of like, well, Mr. Murray gets Year 12 literature. We can't give Year 12 literature to, to a graduate or Mr. Murray's going to get upset. And then suddenly all that's left are, are these really, really challenging classes. But then there's also just the huge amount of pressure, I think, that flows down from um, uh, uh, government and so on. In regards to, I write a lot about, I think we're very, very obsessed almost at the moment in education with uh, data and testing and accountability. And when you put that type of pressure, particularly on new staff, they can feel like, well, to meet those demands, I need to be working sometimes all the time virtually. So a whole combination of factors, I think, that coalesce there. The other reason I think that people leave is um, the behaviour management challenges and in some cases that even the trauma that you can be exposed to as a teacher, which um, perhaps we don't talk about enough with um, pre-service teachers. 
You talk about it in the book, though. You write about your own experience a number of times with students who have clearly experienced trauma in their own lives, and you provide uh, a sense of mentoring for these people, a sense of security for a number of these young people, but also you get very emotionally engaged with them, and you have to walk that very fine line between becoming a friend and a confidant and a teacher. And you talk about it in the book about staying awake at night, not being able to go to sleep, having to walk on the beach in the morning to clear your head to go to work, to find the energy to do it. It sounds like a really difficult job to try to navigate between your work life, your own personal life and your own well-being, and giving everything that you want to give to your students. Yeah, and that is something that I find really hard. I've always been a kind of a softie, if I can put it in, in those terms. We love you for it, though. You beautiful man. I can feel <laughs> it in the book. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> but, yeah, there are those moments definitely. Someone asked me about it the, the other day, and I didn't specifically put this in the book, but an example that I gave of that time where you're like, well, no, I've, something's gone wrong with the balance here. A student I taught for a number of years who was always a really serious self-harm risk I mean, to put it in uncertain terms, we were concerned she could take her own life. And I was worrying about her all the time. And I remember consciously thinking it was almost like a epiphany-type moment when I realised that I was not looking after myself enough. I remember consciously thinking to myself, I can't wait until she graduates so then I won't have to worry about her anymore. And I just remember thinking, no, I've got to, I've got to protect myself a little bit more in the way that I'm feeling about this because... Also, it's a little bit arrogant to think as a teacher that, that you're going to save the world and there's only so much that you can do as a classroom teacher. So it's really important. And I suppose everyone has to find that balance in, in their own way. And my understanding is, is that you had your own teacher in your life. I mean, I think, we, I think everybody listening can probably think of a teacher in their life who shaped them as a person. I know I was have been so lucky with teachers who not only shaped me as a person but sort of stepped in and um, were really there for me in hard times and who I have become friends with in my adulthood, which is really lovely. But um, there was a special teacher in your life. Did this person motivate you to become a teacher as well? Uh, Yeah, to some extent. So I think you're talking about Liam Davison who was the Australian writer and and teacher, wonderful writer and and wonderful teacher, who I'd actually finished year 12 and I was a little bit sort of adrift in life, I would say, or a lot adrift in life actually, and in retrospect quite depressed, a lot of anxiety, really sort of challenging time for me then. And and I ended up enrolling in a creative writing course at, at TAFE, which was taught by uh, this particular, one of the subjects anyway, which was called Short Story 1A. It was taught by Liam Davison. And it was such a transformative 12 months for me because he was this kind of role model. I looked at him and he's like, well, these are all the things that I want to be. He was this engaging, compassionate, interesting guy. He was he was a writer, but he was, you know, he had an income from that because sort of growing up, I always thought, well, I'd love to be a writer, but I don't think writers make very much money, which is still true, but um, that was a, a really important moment for me in terms of thinking about what my future could be and, indeed, what my future now is. It's a beautiful story that you tell about a story that he encouraged you to write that you never did. 
and yet you sort of like have lived with the regret of, of that ever since. Can you share that as, as a little vignette from the book about just how the power of a good teacher can resonate with you right throughout your adult life? Sure. And I suppose to, I mean, to put it in context, because some people may not know, is that Liam Davison was on the flight that was shot down over the Ukraine. And this was some years after um, he'd taught me and and what a shock that was to me. But I remember being in his class and we were talking about symbolism. And at that time, I worked in a, well, it was like a junk shop, basically. And one of the things that we sold were the, the Christmas crackers or bonbons that, that you, you know, you pull them and they, they pop and there's a, a gift inside. And this guy had come in one day really, really upset. He wanted a refund and he was very angry because his elderly mother on Christmas Day had popped one of these crackers and it had a little plastic skull keyring on it. And she at that time was in the late stages of, of cancer. So for him, this had been a, a really powerful symbol and it, it, it had had this real impact. And I was telling Liam about that story at the time while I was studying short story 1A and, and he said, oh, Brendan, you should write that story. You know, there's something there that you can do something with that. And for whatever reason at that time, I think I was writing something else and, and I never did write it. Uh, and then, of course, later down the track, we lost Liam in, in just such a, an awful way. And, and I connected it with that story and, and his encouragement to me to write that story. And one of the privileges of the school has been able to actually pay tribute to Liam. And I've included that vignette in the book and really actually a really, really, really powerful moment for me after the book came out was that I got quite a long and beautiful message from um, Liam's brother thanking me for what I wrote there. So, yeah, I remain eternally thankful for the role that Liam as a teacher played in in my life. That's so beautiful. How do you, I know you don't speak for all teachers as a monolith, um, but students across Victoria and uh, New South Wales, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, are set to begin back at school within the next several weeks. How do you think teachers are feeling about this? And what do you think you will be looking out for among your student body and among your colleagues when you return to school? Yeah, I think there's huge numbers of students who are really keen to go back. They're they're sick of being at home. They want to be with their friends. But I think we've got to remember that there's also going to be students who are really anxious about it and, and perhaps quite afraid. And they're not necessarily going to be saying that to their friends. If you're sitting in a group of other kids who are saying, oh, you know, it's going to be awesome, we can hang out again, you're not necessarily going to say as a, you know, 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, I'm really nervous about that. So I think we need to be alert to the fact that there are going to be those kids there, that we need to be alert to the fact that there are kids who have probably become quite comfortable and happy and and quite used to that safe, cosy kind of world that has been lockdown and we'll have a role there to look after them and I think each other as as teachers as well I mean we've got a three-month-old at home at the moment and the sort of thing I worry about is the last thing I'd want is to go to work to this busy environment and you know bring home coronavirus and give it to my three-month-old daughter like it's a nightmare to even think about that so it's just such a complicated time and and so much going on in that regard that it's going to be a very challenging and very interesting next uh, 12 months, whatever, as we do open back up. One of the aspects of the school, the book that you've written, is much about your own remembrance of your school experience because the element in here that makes it uh, an interesting dynamic is that 
you teach at the school that you attended as a child. So there's this incredible resonance around your own memories of what happened to you. And you do recount the encounters that you had with the school bully and the problems that, that you faced as, as a young bookish kid and relating that to the childhood experience of others coming through. You've obviously got a deep commitment to your community and to public education. Is, is that something that's been hard to hold on to as, as public education becomes more and more squeezed and the demands on teachers grow exponentially and the resourcing shrinks. How have you managed to hold on to that? Because I'm sure if you wanted to, you could get a job at a private school and get paid more money and probably have a, a, a probably an easier life than you currently have. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say to me, oh, Brendan, would you consider teaching in a private school? And at the moment, definitely not. I mean, I came through the, the public system, as did my brother and sister, and we really, really benefited from that. And I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I really do enjoy and I'm passionate about giving back to that system and, and those types of kids. And you just have this amazing opportunity again for social transformation, if you like, in a kid's life and breaking the poverty cycle. Like we see the kids who say to us, I'm the first person in my family to, to get to year 12 or I'm the first person in my family to be offered a, a university place and to have played a role in that, even if it's only a small role, you might have taught the kid for one year back when they're in year eight. But again, you're a part of that and it's a good feeling. Even when you've had a bad day, you might have had a really tough day. You can think of those sorts of things and that keeps me going. I agree with you. Everyone in the system is quite, I think, tired and, and frustrated with elements of the system. My view is that we don't have the balance right between the human aspects of the job and the, I suppose, bureaucratic, data-focused accountability aspects of, of the job. So things we like ATAR things, and those sorts of things and, and ATAR and NAPLAN and those sorts of those grading and uh, assessment elements. Definitely, definitely. I, I think there's too much of a focus on those things and that does make it hard, but I think all of us or, or the majority of us you can forget about those things quite easily when you're standing in the classroom and working with your kids. I was talking to a teacher actually recently and she said, I'm happiest at school when I'm in that classroom with the kids. And she said it's, it's actually more so when she comes out of the classroom and dealing with all this other stuff where um, frustration comes in. But you're right, it's, it's hard, it's, it's challenging. Can I just ask a follow-up here? Just on that issue though, look, I'm – I come from a background, and like Sally, uh, where educational opportunity was limited. And having been lucky enough to navigate my high school education a long time ago now, but the circumstances in that community remain the same. I've been completely convinced that we are capable of building cultures of expectation for kids by limiting resourcing and opportunity. And therefore, kids in school systems will become what's expected of them because they don't see other options or they're not provided with the capacity to reach their full potential. Are we getting any better at making sure that that doesn't become the intergenerational cycle that it has been for a very long time where kids are not given the opportunity, the potential is never really examined or, or explored and just go on to be what their environment will determine that they will be? I think on the small scale we're getting better at it because teachers are aware of it and, and we fight really hard to change it. On the large scale, sadly, uh, I would say not uh, as a broader society. I mean, sometimes, and look, I stand to be corrected on this and perhaps I'm wrong, but I would think the majority of 
our politicians in this country probably attended private schools and their kids probably attend private schools. So suddenly you you have a situation where maybe there isn't a great deal of, uh, I don't want to say people are heartless, but maybe that's just not their focus on the government system because their kids aren't in it, they haven't been in it, they don't know what it's like. And I've got very, very, very little criticism for this book. It's all been very, very positive, the stuff that I've received. But a small amount of negative stuff that I have received is in some instances it's been people who maybe have something invested in the private school system. And I sort of asked myself, have I been unfair? And I think, well, no, I haven't. Have I hit a nerve? Is this kind of privilege trying to protect itself in some ways? But you're right to raise that question. I I do think we could do a lot more. And in some ways, it, it stops being about education and comes back to our perceptions of the poor in some instances. You know, that whole if you have a go, you'll get a go kind of attitude. A teacher said it to me once, you know, it's hard to pull your socks up if you don't have any socks. And that that remains um, something that I that I think about out of there. Brendan, one of the beautiful aspects of the book is you talking openly about ghosts that, that still haunt schools, that schools have a history, they have a character, they have a smell that lingers on <laughs> long after you leave, even though lots of elements transform within schools. But those things are there. And you talk about kids that fleetingly came into your orbit and then sort of get to hurtled out into, into the wider world and not always with a happy ending. It must be a melancholy duty at times, knowing that some of these kids, you cannot change necessarily the trajectory of their life, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, I think melancholy is the perfect word. It's this kind of bittersweet thing where in one school day you're seeing kids overcome challenges and and achieve things and be inspired and be excited and and succeed. But then in that same day you're, you're seeing kids who are facing extraordinary struggles or in some cases metaphorically are ghosts in the sense that they're just not there, you know, they're, they're absent again and they were absent last lesson and maybe the lesson before and maybe you only see them once a week and you don't know what's going on in their lives. Sometimes you do, but, but often you don't and, and it is this, um, this awareness that you have, again, to, to use a metaphor, it's sort of like being a, a nurse where you see some people get well and, and you see some people don't get well and that is what education feels a little bit like sometimes, I think. Are you going to stay in it? I mean, you're, you're clearly a gifted writer. You've written, this is your third book, I do believe. You've written a novel. You've written uh, uh, also Venom, the Heroic Search for Australia's Deadliest Snake, which is, you know, niche, I've got to say, but I'm really interested <laughs> in what that's about. Uh, the Drowned Man, a true story, life, death and murder on uh, the HMAS Australia, the, the ship that sunk off the coast of Western Australia during World War Two. So you've, you've got deep and abiding interest. Is this vocational commitment one that is a lifer for you? I think so. Uh, I 100% want to teach until I retire. That That is rock solid my plan at the moment. And I think writing complements that well as as an English teacher because I love talking to the kids about the um, the writing that I do and you know, I run a, a writers club and there's a you know nice little group of really keen young writers there so I see them as um, hand in hand in a lot of ways and it comes back to that Liam Liam Davison thing as well you know you can do both those things and they're a good uh, pairing of things to be doing. 
And in the meantime, are you working on another book? What's what's the next uh, chapter in your own writing experience, Brendan? Well, at the moment, I'm not working on anything at all. I've got clear horizons. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm waiting for something to catch my interest or inspiration, which in itself is, a, is an exciting kind of feeling that I can go out looking for something. But at the moment, with again, with our three-month-old, just sort of focusing on being a dad and um, I'm been thinking maybe every dad who's a writer or and mum as well who's a writer does this I'm already thinking that I could write something that she could read so maybe something you know for a very young audience so she'll be able to read it as soon as possible but um yeah we'll see where that takes me are you still fanboying Peter Carey in your current classes have you have you got a new writer who you're sort of uh, putting the picture on top of the on top of the uh, <laughs> the PA speaker for the kids to look at no, nobody can push Peter Carey out. I'm always <laughs> going to be passionately in love with Peter Carey. But I've, I've got a bit fanboyish lately with um, a Canadian writer named Alice Munro, who I'd never heard of. She came up on one of the Year 12 lists and I taught Alice Munro for, for 12 months and by the end of it I was like, now nah, I think I'm a bit obsessed with Alice Munro. Oh, you've got to so. give us a few titles then, quickly, while you're here. Look, Collection of Short Stories, Dance of the Happy Shades by Alice Munro great read they gave her the nobel prize for literature so if that's not uh that's not a sign of good writing i don't know what is but you've got to read my books first but yeah. when you're done with this, you can read alice Munro's book. i will look sally's laptop has crashed that's why she sort of disappeared off the end of this podcast <laughs> we're living in covid times we're recording remotely and her laptop decided to update right in the middle of our, our podcast record so she apologizes but i just want to say congratulations on the school uh it really has uh it, it's brought back a lot of memories good and bad and otherwise but i'm utterly entranced by it and uh, i feel a great connection with the kids in, in who are in this book i hope that they've uh, They've come through well and are living their best lives, but you've represented their story so brilliantly, mate. Congratulations on it, and uh, we thank you for being on the job. No, thank you so much for having me. Um, love your work, and, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Brennan James Murray is our guest. He is the author of The School, The Ups and Downs of One Year in the Classroom. It's published by Picador. It's a fantastic read. That's it for this week's edition of On the Job. Sally says goodbye too. She can't say goodbye because her laptop's crashed. You just heard all that. Uh, my name is Francis Leach. Follow Sally at Sally Rugg on Twitter. Uh, me at St. Frankly. Send us a message and also give us a review of the podcast uh, and it helps people find the information and the inspiration. And we'll catch you on next week's episode of On the Job. 